Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast with myself, Henry Femby Taylor, and also Neil Thompson. Say hi, Neil. Hello, everyone. And we are joined today by Dev Amratia of Nplan. Hello. Thanks for joining us. So, Dev, why are you here talking to us, the Digital Twin Fan Club, about Nplan, talking about the problem that you're trying to solve? How is it applicable to the world that we're talking about in terms of creating uh, digital representations of things that are real? Now, for me, um, there's this pure admiration uh, and of your audacity, I guess, to try and deal with what must be the most difficult problem that faces um, our, um, you know, it's not just our industry. I think it's an aspect of human culture. You know, we, our society, the things that we build to support that society are becoming more and more complex. That means it becomes harder to manage and things go wrong or things go right and we don't know why. And trying to apply technology to fix the problem of you know, how do we be on time? How do we deliver to the appropriate quality? How can we make sure that um, risk is not seen in the real world and it's only a thing that we play about in the digital space? So really keen to expand that conversation. And um, what else, Henry? What else? We don't always talk about the built environment. So I think it's worth being specific about the UK's built environment programs, government inventing, investing in infrastructure and being really keen on getting a return on investment and understanding what it's getting for its investment and not necessarily understanding that from the information that it's given and the measures that we're using to measure, you know, to big, big, big ticket numbers, you know, are really, really, really crude. I don't even know by what percentage how crude. I have no idea. But I suspect when you're talking billions of pounds being, you know, five or ten percent out, it's kind of a big deal. And Henry, it's not five or ten percent, right? It's sixty to eighty percent out. Uh, so big number, then sixty to eighty percent is a big number, and then you're at even bigger number at, at considerable numbers that you know become eye-watering. Um, you know the 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 way the way I see the problem is that you've got volatility that is unquantifiable. Um, it's sort of like everyone on the street knows construction projects don't quite go to plan, right? You don't really need to work in the industry to know that sort of stuff. Um, so when you think of it from a public perspective, uh, you think of it from a government perspective, and then you think of it from an investor perspective, the problem you have is that no one actually believes what they're being presented. Um, we're going to build this big railway called High Speed 2. Ask the pub, ask the citizen how much they believe um, it will either return in terms of public ben benefit or how much it will actually cost and how long it will actually take. And you generally will hear, I don't really, you know, whatever these guys are actually saying, I'm not actually sure that's actually going to happen, right? So manifest that into something a bit more specific here, which is how do we drive down this notion that Construction projects are wild beasts that cannot be tamed. Can we tame the beast, right? So this is the problem that we're trying to solve at Nplan, uh, a, a nice chunky problem that keeps us on our toes day in and day out. The way, the way we're going about doing it is 
we we believe that past performance is a really strong indicator to help us understand what might happen on current and future projects. This is not God mode that's going to tell you exactly what will happen to everything, um, but merely an indicator of, hey, if you know these sort of 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 things have systemically had a problem, you're probably also going to have that problem because it's a systemic problem. And up until now, we've never been able to unleash that. It's interesting because I think a lot of people get very far in their careers by having lots of experience and they look, you know, they have this, this I, I can, drawing on my experience, I can yeah. tell you this, but actually that experience is deeply biased and there's no, there's no actual data behind that. And you, you don't really know how much you can trust that person's data, no matter how trustworthy that person is, because, you know, we're all inherently human. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, I'm I'm guilty as charged in that myself, right? I, I've I've been in the field managing large construction projects, pushing them through the sanctioning point and saying, you know, based on the last project I worked on, this is what I think will happen to this project, and it's like total junk because what what happened on the last project is just not rel particularly relevant um, to what I'm going to bring forth. I'm also going to have selective memory. Only going to remember certain parts, you know, there are 50,000 activities required to deliver a billion pound project. Um, how much can I possibly ever remember? Um, and then, and then, yes, you, as you rightly say, we have inherent biases, especially optimism bias, right? The people that you employ onto the project team are typically also the people that want to see the project being delivered no matter what. Um, ben Fluberg has, has written many an article about. Um, about the fallacies that exist in this space. And I think he, I believe he calls it the iron law um, of, of project management. Um, uh, so escaping that velocity of saying, well, people inherently believe this and act in these ways. How do you remove that, um, the, the negativity that that can create and push it into uh, a world where data can actually bring out the truth and, and arbitrate between mankind? The interesting thing for me is that you're looking at data sets that don't have any um, geographical element to them. It's purely temporal plus some form of, um, you know, uh, analysis of the language, matching the patterns of those with and with some form of impact score. So I think it's really interesting. So I think when we talk about, you know, the digital twinning world there's this conversation around the physicalness of the day you know the physical representation of this but you know you're you are building a digital representation of a um what is it is it a delivery process is it what, what how would you describe that to someone yeah uh, it's a it's a diff it's a it's a fun question um the i i would say it's I'm going to be guilty now of like going overly technical. So Neil, you know, you, you rain me, rain, you know, pipe me down. Um, uh, the my instinctive answer is to respond by saying that it is a graphical network that represents the relationships of execution, of time-based execution, right? So a schedule or an execution pathway is a graph 
um, uh, and a, a graph structure. It has nodes and it has relationships between these nodes. Um, and what we understand is what was originally conceived uh, or the plan, and then what actually happened, right? And so you imagine these two graphs and one is the, the, the ambitious view that the project team once had when they were planning the project. And graph two is the actual view of what happened to the project. And you mesh these two things together and the interference between the graphs is learning, right? That's how you and I and everyone on, on this good planet have learned everything. We make an assumption that this water is cold and then you drink the water and you have now learned that the water was indeed cold. Yeah, and that's interesting, isn't it? Because there's this um, uh, kind of an innate action-reaction sort of observation-response inherent in all, all life, as you say. I don't want to get too profound too quickly. <laughs> I lie. I totally want to get too profound too quickly. Let's stay on topic, though. Um, <laughs> it's it, it does feel like... Um, certainly from my experience, though, one of the problems that I have is that we start off with the plan, but then the plan morphs and the plan might, we might not always have access to every version of the plan as we've developed it over time. Mm -hmm. So we might have the very outline one and then we might have it at key milestones, but it'd be really useful to know how the plan is had and has developed and is developing um and can you can you kind of correlate out external events and does that impact on what's happening and you know what can you do with it i guess yeah yeah it it, it, it is a difficult problem right um you're, you're trying to provide project teams with uh, as you said earlier henry with the world's experience at their fingertips um, that is inherently quite complex to manifest. Like, how do you bring the entire planet onto the fingertip of someone? Um, uh, there are a few products in the world that have solved that, uh, that you know, we use every day and take for granted. Um, the, the, the way we think of it in the planning world is, is two-part. Um, one, planning is inherently probabilistic. Anything in the future is actually a probability rather than a, a fact, right? Um, especially in this industry. So when we plan at the moment, the big, big, big challenge is most people can't think in probabilistic terms. If you can't take 10,000 activities and model that each activity has an element of uncertainty to it, an element of severity to it, uh, and therefore the subsequent effect of that severity and likelihood will impact the next one, which impacts the next one, which impacts to the power of 10,000. So I think it's worth pointing out the um, people um, very often have a quite a Newtonian view of there is action and reaction. And that is that, which is true. That is, that is the case. But Newton himself, when looking at what is called the three body problem, which is about if you have two say two planets orbiting each other you you can just predict that you know what that is but if you introduce a third body coming in at some weird angle at some weird speed 
it ends up behaving very chaotically. So just by adding, you know, two's company, three's a crowd. Well, what is 10,000 then? Yeah. You know, I think it's important to know and to really reinforce that it is probabilistic and it isn't mechanistic, no matter how much you think it might be. So this is Dev's 10,000 body problem. Yeah, it, I, I'll go so far, actually, we've studied this in the earlier days of NPLAN. Uh, this is known as a state space, right? So what is the, you know, on chess, you can understand the state space of chess. Uh, it's that single two-dimensional board. Um, what is the state space of a construction activity, um, right? So what are all the things that can affect the outcome of a single activity? And the state space, which might sound a bit out of this world to say this, is larger than the number of atoms there are in the universe, which is it, which is a bizonkers kind of number, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, to keep it technical, um, <laughs> the uh, the and and so solving it, it, what this means is that there's so many things that can affect one activity and its relationship to the next that most of us simplify, right? That's how we humans are great animals that's simplifying down complex things and dissecting them and breaking them down and saying, let's, you know, not try and solve this whole thing, but actually solve them in segmented parts. Um, we see this in all complex engineering subjects is that's how we, we've been taught to solve it. But what we are not very good at is solving it together. So this is a, a problem that actually has to be solved at this at simultaneously, which means you have to be able to look at the whole thing at once um, which is the grunt of, you know, Crossrail, uh, we, you know, we've seen Crossrail schedules sitting at just over 1.2 million activities. Imagine solving 1.2 million, million probabilistic equations at the same time. So, uh, you know, to distill this down and, and simplify it again, <laughs> see, here we go, human simplifying things. Um, to distill it, it's what, what we end up doing is that we miss out, right? We, we say, let's just look at the high level version of this thing and then try and figure out what we need to think about. But of course, we've all been taught in this industry, the devil sits in the detail. You know, it's the activity that goes wrong, right? It's the, the welder that couldn't finish the weld on time that then leads to the, the cascading effects and then 10,000 of these things occurring left and right of us. So this incomes where machines really play uh, play to their strengths, which is they're tenacious beasts that love operating at that minutiae that, you know, you and I just get bored and think it's too tedious to operate at that level. And so if you think about machines operating at the lowest level, which is the activity analysis at a probabilistic sense using past data, and then you roll upwards to the place where we as people start to feel more comfortable, which is Oh, so what is the probability that this project is going to end on, on a certain end date? What are the top 10 risks on my project, right? These are now uh, human, uh, human level questions and answers that most people on projects can, can trade the question and answer with. And, uh, and sorry to dwell on the, 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 the geometric element of that, but the, the thought experiment that fascinates me is the how far can you um, create a probabilistic model based upon the activities and its adjacencies without knowing its geographical context? 
Do you mm. think about all the things that you learned previously or happened in a particular place and you're trying to project forward on somewhere that's not in the same place because you're not building the same thing again? So I think it throws up a really interesting question about how applicable geometric context is to mapping the future state of a project. Not too sure there's a question. I think it's more of a statement. But yeah. I think the, the interesting thing is, is for you know, how 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 much how how much power is added to your um predictive model if it is connected with a yeah um other ways of sensing its context just outside the the task can, can i make your question even harder neil um, <laughs> Go on then. um i mean if what, you what about I what mean... about what about the political context right what about the contracting context what about heck what about the mood of the supervisor that morning that his dog, you know, didn't quite want to go for the walk, um, you know, that might affect welding performance on that day. So um, what I'm getting at, Neil, is that actually these are all circumstances that, in, that create the envelope of context upon which the project is being executed on. Yes, building a, you know, building a power station in Saudi Arabia is very different from building a power station in London. I don't even know if we, when we last built a power station in London, um, but the so so the way we solve this um, is one that it might sound a little surprising, which is actually to to produce an unconstrained environment that allows a machine to go and automatically identify patterns in and amongst the graph network. Now, what it does is it actually goes and finds patterns in and amongst activities, sections of activities, and clusters them together. And this clustering mechanism is not supervised, right? So you've sort of told the algorithm, here's lots and lots of projects, just go find patterns. I don't care what the pattern is, just go find something. And then out comes clusters, right? It says, I think this, these 20 have a pattern together, and these 20 have another pattern together. Then we can look at it. And what will end up happening is that cluster one will probably be all the London-based projects. Now, what made it London-based projects? Um, there may have been something in the activity sequence that led the algorithm to believe that. Now, the only thing that it doesn't know is that this is London. That's what you and I know. Just like it doesn't know what a bridge is, right? A bridge, we know what bridges are because we've been taught that externally. All it'll do is it'll bring the segments together so then what you have is, I guess you could call it a stupid pattern, uh, a stupid pattern recognition system, where it's identifying patterns, but it doesn't know what the pattern is for or what it does and what it manifests to in real life. But crucially, it has discovered a pattern. Then what happens, the, the, the trick now is to correlate the patterns that it's been identified across thousands of projects to one project, which is the project in analysis. That's the only thing that now matters, right? So new fresh project arrives and it's, we will all know it's a, a bridge that is in London and is very complex. And the algorithm will come in, the new schedule comes in and it goes and finds, where can I find patterns with this stuff elsewhere? And it'll discover the bridge cluster, right? It'll discover the London cluster. It'll discover the complex execution clusters. It'll discover the, lump sum fixed price contract clusters, right? Which 
are intrinsically, you know, these operate in thousands and thousands of dimensions of clusters, right? I just said three or four that I as a person might identify, but the way the algorithm does it is, is wholly different. And richer, I guess. The, the key word in there is that the, when they do it, it will be far, far, far richer than what you and I will ever think is a pattern. It's like an it's like an idiot savant view almost to me. It's the sort of it doesn't know what it's looking at, but it might be seeing deeper and yeah. further than it than we could. But it doesn't know what it's looking at, and I think there's a weird contradiction in, inside there that's it's kind of anti-intuitive for people to get hold of when they try and think of what what is AI. They always they assume that that kind of basic level of comprehension. Is 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 a platform, but actually that that comprehension it eludes the system. The pan mm -hmm. recognition beyond what you or I can do seems to be present, but um, yeah. as you say, it doesn't seem to kind of it doesn't actually doesn't actually know it's in London. It doesn't really know what a bridge is. It just knows that all these bridge projects seem to behave in this sort of mm. way, and all these London projects seem to behave in this sort of way, and it. As you say, it's us that comes and uh, ascribes that uh, afterwards. Yeah. It, it, for me, it opens up the conversation about what the future looks like for professionals in this industry. Because you know, if we think about if, the, if, if this capability doesn't exist, and we think about today, how most projects are run, we're in the space of we just get the best shot, one shot of doing this thing, and we muddle our way through. And, you know, we'll learn some stuff on the way that won't be applicable to the next one. And we'll just make the same mistakes again. In a world where one, you know, people's roles is less around just doing what you can to get through your one shot and be resilient. And, you know, the phrase of getting your scars on your back and all that type of mm -hmm. culture around project delivery and management and all that stuff. Uh, and moving it towards um, selecting or conversing with these pattern recognition systems to, you know, the way I see it is instead of having a, you know, running into a project with a sledgehammer, you've got yourself a control desk in front of you. And it's about the using it as a diagnostics machine and you're, you're feeling your way through in smaller steps. Uh, and I think that's quite a big cultural leap for us to jump through because it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, I, th I think, and I'm just making an opinion, I think that it feels more complicated and difficult, but in reality, it would be much easier because you're able to bring a level playing field in terms of yeah. the conversation. You can have a conversation with another human about a massive problem and do something about oh, yeah. it and invite them in. You can talk to a different type of stakeholder because at this moment in time, the you know one of the this is what I believe one of the root causes of the bad reputation that we have as an industry is because it's the stuff that we do is so difficult and opaque, and we just got to get on with it. We kind of don't worry about the communication, but as soon as you can communicate these complicated things in a simple, I say simpler, it will be simpler. You can you can almost you know I, I think about um, you, you know uh, and maybe we can cover this your uh, uh, project performance index type stuff. You can almost you know, you can make this complicated thing boil down to a traffic light system or emojis. You know, it's it could it could be communicated in that way. And I wonder, in terms of sort of the future impact about the communications with different stakeholders, how do you yeah. how do you feel you, that's going to go? 
Yeah, it, it, it's it's a good question and something that you know I've I've had the privilege of watching unfold from start to I wouldn't say finish, but start to some way deep into the story. Um, and the start is is a scary start, right? It's like, what is this kind of worms going to be? Do I trust it? Do I believe it? Trust and belief is such an important part. Um, as a company, we've invested heavily in you know, building systems that can enable that trust and belief uh, from doing redacted back tests where, you know, let's pretend like Nplan was around eight years ago and we were able to forecast your projects eight years ago and you know the outcome and we didn't know the outcome. How did we do, right? That those are mechanisms to generate trust and belief in, in these systems. And then we've evolved from the, the trust and belief challenges into the implementation challenges, which is like, all right, now that you think this thing isn't snake oil anymore, um, how are you going to use it every day? And, and the first thing that used to, you know, the things that were happening earlier on and in some cases still happening was, oh, I don't believe that. Um, which is, you know, if you think about it, um, we've, this industry, as you say, Neil, is, is an industry where we reward experience. We reward people with battle scars, um, which, is, which is a noble thing to do. The challenge with rewarding that uh, and encouraging that as a mechanism of who we need to bring on to hire onto our team is that these, these individuals are paid to have opinions. And when, an, when any one or any algorithm uh, you know, uh, poses a different opinion, which is like, you know, based on 400,000 other projects, we, this, is, this might be the thing that actually goes wrong. And they were like, oh, no. It didn't go wrong on my last project, so it's not going to go wrong on this project. And I think that's, well, for me, that's one of the key biases is that I, if you look around the built environment and part of its reputation is that it biases towards a certain level of um, not taking any crap, I think is the kind way to put it, um, which <laughs> creates its own set of behaviours, which has its own set of connotations for the workplace, for the sorts of people yeah. that stay in the industry and you end up with this kind of and i'm going to call it a vicious cycle because i think it is a vicious cycle of um combative strong-headed behaviors that are reinforced because that is actually what gets results because people are very used to being scared of data being scared yeah. of what they see around them, their real life data, and needing to find some certainty through it. So they provide the certainty yeah. by being yeah. certain. This is the thing that I can't get my head around is we only have to look at how um, social media, uh, fake news and confirmation bias and you know, convincing somebody that something's you know, this thing is true or not 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 true but there is a high probability of a thing happening and this is going to help you i mean we're in a world where people you know can look at the highest quality of scientific evidence for an intervention and say i am entitled to my opinion and i don't believe in that and that holds as much weight and it's the, it's the only thing that troubles not me on about my watch but, <laughs> but that's that's the thing that, that that troubles me is if we're gonna create if we create a clever system that enables us to have this 
higher level of scientific evidence to say this is things that you should focus on yeah um how is that going to be listened to yeah so again this is like you know if you think about it in terms of the the journey that the journey and the future and the direction we're traveling in it started with this is snake oil this is fake i don't believe it to my it varies from my opinion so how do i consolidate the unknown unknowns with the known knowns and you know when you when someone or anything brings you new information that you didn't believe in previously you're going to have to take it different people will absorb that information quite differently um to put it politely um the um, the next phase and this is the phase which we're starting to see projects adopting and people that you know have been doing this for 40 years saying huh interesting which is uh, the incentive mechanism so the incentive mechanism is around what what happens if you um if you do act on something if you mitigate a risk or capture an opportunity you know you might not your opinion might sit against what you are seeing in a probabilistic system um so this is a this is a way of you capturing something and taking you know leading to a positive action and 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 it's important to then close the loop right which is like the probabilistic system said that screwing in a light bulb tomorrow morning is going to have x likelihood of having a delay on it so what did you do you called up the electrician and said hey i'm going to need your best man or woman to, to help me with that light bulb tomorrow morning and then the action happens and then the feedback cycle kicks off which is that because i took action on something I averted a failure or I captured an opportunity. And then you see the repetitive effect of, of that change, right? I think where, where, where it's difficult in the world is when you don't get that feedback, when you're, you're listening to information or have to absorb information, but have no way of actually testing or understanding whether or not it does anything for you. I think that's the key thing, isn't it? I think human beings are inherently pattern recognizing and that is almost a problem when there isn't a conclusion to the pattern you know yeah. one two three four 25 you know the the the, the pattern recognizer inside us needs that conclusion we are we are wired to see that in the same way that we are wired to see the color red because that's what the color berries are and we have a greater sensitivity to the color green because that's the color of the environments that we live in. We are, we are wired a certain way. And I think it's really important that we have tools available to us and that you can phrase it in a way of, you know, we're talking about here's your pattern, but here's your benefit because we love those as well. Yeah, we yeah. do love a benefit. And I think that's a wonderful point to uh, finish off today's episode though so i'd like to uh, thank neil thompson and uh, dev amratia for joining us today um, this has been a very interesting conversation i've been henry Fabi taylor and this has been the digital twin fan club podcast mm -hmm.